Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Melissa Lee, and today for Scott Wapner. Scott, stocks rally as Russian tensions ease, but more worrying signs about inflation. What do investors do from here, and is it time to shift the focus from inflation to growth? Plus, hedge funds making some major stock moves in this market. We'll debate them. Our investment committee today, Steve Weiss, Sarat Sethi, Jim Labenthal, John Nigerian, co-founder of MarketRebellion.com, and Anastasia Omarosa, the chief investment strategist at at iCapital, excuse me. Let's get a check on the markets at this hour. Uh, this major average is snapping a three-day losing streak despite more data on rising inflation. The rally being fueled by news that Russian troops are pulling back from Ukraine's border and returning back to bases. Close to session highs here. The Nasdaq up by more than 2%. S&P 500 up by one5 And the Dow is posting a 1.3% gain. It is a broad-based rally. Everything but safety is doing well in today's session. Safety plus energy not doing well. Uh, the 10-year note is at 2.03%. Steve Weiss, what do you make of this market? Well, you know what? We could have uh, taken three days off and come back today and we would have been in the same place. So you can see these major rips. We've got some we got some breaking news involving Boeing that we want to get to. Phil LeBeau is standing by with it. Phil. Melissa, this involves the 787 Dreamliner. Remember, Boeing has been working with the FAA to get the FAA to approve the inspection process so that Boeing can resume deliveries of the 787 Dreamliner. The FAA putting out an announcement just within the last couple of minutes saying that it is removing Boeing's ability to self-certify 787 Dreamliners before they can be delivered. The significance of this is that this is the FAA essentially saying, "Uh uh-uh, we want our people to check each and every 787 Dreamliner once an inspection process has been approved. We want our people to then certify each individual aircraft before it can be delivered. Remember, the FAA is already doing this with the 737 MAX. That was part of when they came out of uh, everything, getting the airworthiness certificate back and resuming deliveries. Boeing doesn't have the self-certification ability with the MAX, and it no longer has it with the 787 Dreamliner. The Boeing has not delivered a 787 Dreamliner since May of last year, and a number of their customers have said they were optimistic that deliveries could resume in April or May You have to wonder if that's a possibility now that the FAA is pulling back Boeing's ability to self-certify Dreamliners. Melissa, back to you. Phil, the stock seems to be holding on its gain of of 4%. If if we had given you the news before and said, how is the stock going to react, is is this what you would have expected? I would expect a little bit of a pullback, but I also have to be honest with you. When you talk with people in the airline industry and you say, hey, they're talking about there's an optimism that the Dreamliner deliveries will resume this spring, 
Not everybody buys that. Not everybody thinks that that's uh, that's a foregone conclusion. And let's be clear, Boeing has been very careful not to set a deadline out there. When we talked to Dave Calhoun, he did not say, oh, yeah, we're going to start in April. He says the company line, which is we're working with the regulators. We want to get everything uh, certified and worked uh, to the standards that the FAA is looking for before we resume delivery. So I'm not entirely surprised that we're seeing no reaction to the stock. I thought we'd see a little bit, but not entirely surprised we're not. All right, Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau, I guess it's all about managing expectations, Jim Labenthal. You own Boeing. Were your expectations managed? And do you think that this could pose a further delay to getting those deliveries out the door? Well, when you say further delay, Melissa, it's it's uh, relative to what we don't have a date firm or even fuzzy as far as when 787 deliveries will resume. But I, I think there's something to be said that the stock is up and was up before this announcement. And there wasn't that much news today. I think people caught uh, caught wind of this. And frankly, this announcement from the FAA sounds more like endgame than anything else. The FAA has to know that they are holding up the U.S. economy here. And it's one thing about air safety, airworthiness, but the 787 is flying around the world. This is about delivery. So clearly the plane is safe. The FAA wants its pound of flesh for what went on with the 737 MAX. Okay, they've got it. It's time to move on. Get Boeing out of the penalty box because the economy will be better for it. And again, this isn't an airworthiness issue. So this, again, smells like endgame to me. Um, Sarat, I'm curious what your opinion is because it it seems like Boeing is, is still firmly in the penalty box with this move from the FAA saying that we've got to certify these planes, not you. You know, I agree with Jim. I think this is just a power struggle going on. It seems to be a lot more political than there's real substance. And if you look again at the stock price, you look at kind of what's happened in the past, I don't think this changes the trajectory of Boeing. I think uh, it's something that we investors have have, have acknowledged that was going to happen potentially, but it doesn't really, this is not game changing. This is just one more more way to get to the end. And as Jim Jim, uh, accurately put it, I think we're getting closer to the end than we are in the beginning. All right, we've lost about a half a percent on Boeing, but it's still up by 3.7% on the session. Steve Weiss, back to you. Sorry to interrupt. We're seeing a nice rally on our hands, a pretty broad-based one at that. Semiconductors up 4.4%, small caps up nicely. I mean, what do you make of this action? Well, first of all, uh, I shorted a little Boeing, very little, while those guys were talking, so I appreciate their comments. Uh, I don't know how they could say it's political. You don't have an elected official running the FAA. He's looking at lives. You have a management that's been completely incompetent. I don't mean to, you know, to go after David Calhoun because it's a tough job, but clearly job's too tough for him. So he presided as chairman of the board over the destruction of this company, destruction of shareholder value, and now they're doubling down. So I'll get interested in this stock when they get new management, but clearly this isn't political. Clearly the FAA is worried about Boeing. It's not as if we haven't heard almost on a monthly basis that there are new safety concerns with it. So, look, Steve, if they were worried about safety, they would have grounded the 787. This is very simple. If they were worried about safety, they would have grounded the 787. They haven't. This isn't about safety. Just stop. It isn't about safety. Basically, Jim, Jim, you're, you're wrong. They've grounded every plane until they inspect it. They're concerned about Boeing's ability 
to be objective in reviewing the safety of the plane. The FAA is concerned with safety. Unless you think they've got a new mandate, which is all of a sudden to be publicly elected officials and Steve, the 787 is the public, this isn't political. You don't know what you're talking right. about, the 787 and I'm glad, is fine. You're, you're factually wrong. I I'm, mean, I'm not I'm not saying anything about the D- Jim, the FAA, FAA came out and said, we're going to check every plane before you deliver it. What's that about? Steve, it's not about, about safety? safety. It's not about safety because the okay, 787 okay. is we'll fine. let the viewers okay. and I'm shareholders sorry, guys, to interrupt. I'm going to we'll insert myself into this wonderful conversation. Jim, if it's not about safety, then what is it about if the FAA does say we have to have one of our guys take a look at this plane before it goes out the door? The FAA is still wiping egg off of their face from three to four years ago with the 737 MAX certification, which was clearly botched. There's no question about that. And everybody at the FAA is running around covering their behinds, and that's all this is. But actually what this does is it allows the planes to start to be delivered again. I don't give a hoot whether an FAA guy is signing off on it or not. This gets us closer to deliveries. That's what's important for the stock. And it's, this isn't about airworthiness or they would have grounded the fleet. They didn't do that. I think that's a good point, Steve Weiss. I mean, actually, I, I don't want to dominate this whole yeah. conversation between the two of you and, and have the whole show focus right. on Boeing. But, it, I mean, investors want clarity. In fact, clarity is the FAA will inspect and then the planes will be delivered. That is some form of clarity that did not exist prior to about eight minutes ago. You're right, but it slows down the delivery because now you're reliant on a government agency that is doing plenty of things and is understaffed like every other government agency inspecting each plane before it's delivered. So that backlog of planes they have sitting there and waiting to be completed now is going to take longer to get out. So, Jim, what do you think of David Calhoun? Do you think the stock would trade much higher if he were not there? Respond, Jim, and then we've got to move on here. Yeah, I'm ready to move on, Mel. I think we've spent enough on this. All right, let's move on then. Um, we'll keep watching okay, the I'll stock. Okay, I'll take that it's, as an assent. It's up by 3%. I mean, I did go to you, Weiss, with the question on the markets, and you answered Boeing. But you know, that yeah. aside, I'll go to Anastasia. What do you make of today's market action in the face of the hotter-than-expected PPI? Hi, Melissa. Well, I think the PPI is not really the focus of the market today. It's really all about paring back some of those Ukraine and Russia fears. And by the way, the reason why the market sold off last week was not because we were so fearful that Russia, Ukraine is going to fundamentally derail the U.S. market. But that was just one more thing to worry about on top of CPI, on top of the Fed that is really not doing a great job communicating. So the fact that we're taking a little bit of that risk off off the table today, I think that goes a long way. And broadly speaking, Melissa, I'll say that it seems to me that investors want to be buyers in this market. I mean, if you think about just how much the valuations have reset, how much froth has been worked off, worked out of the market. And then if you look at positioning and the Nasdaq is leading uh, on the way up today and you know technology shares and so many fund managers, so many hedge funds have actually gone underweight technology. So it doesn't surprise me that you get a little bit of a positive risk on move to the markets and we're stepping right back into the areas that uh, are so got so beaten up right now. And by the way, there's some positive callus besides Ukraine and Russia, and we're starting to get um, start to get information that supply chain bottlenecks are maybe starting to ease a little bit. You got earnings season, so I think there's a pretty big and broad risk on move here today. 
Yeah, Dr. J, do you think sentiment, I mean, the, the point that Tom Lee of Funstrat would make uh, is that sentiment has gotten so bad that it's actually good. And he points specifically to the work of his technician, Mark Newton, who says that put call, the put call ratio was at such extremes that it's actually a good indicator, a, a sign that we may have hit bottom. Exactly, Melissa. And uh, one of the reasons for that, and his strategist is exactly right, put-call ratio is, of course, the number of puts traded to the number of calls. And normal is somewhere between 0.7 and uh, 0.9, perhaps. In other words, people usually speculate and trade calls more than they trade puts. When that ratio goes heavier on the put side, when you're at one and a half, two puts to one call, well, then you're sitting there saying, well, that's one of those inflection points, potentially. And so I applaud them for picking that up. Uh, I do think when you get overly pessimistic, um, you are due for at least a bounce, Melissa. We got up to 33 almost in the VIX last week, I believe. Um, we were seeing uh, a lot of speculative put buying, if not just outright people uh, dumping uh, stocks and calls. And I would say that as much as, you know, the inflation indicators are out there flashing warning signs and so forth, most of us think that's going to pull back over the next several months, at least I do. Um, and one of the things that I was front and center for me was uh, Ukraine. And the fact now that we've had a pullback from there, a major negative catalyst and this is not like saying, oh, let's just dismiss it and we're just going to go off and run. But pulling back, going towards diplomatic is going to be much better for market sentiment going forward, especially if that continues, Melissa, for another two, three days. Then I think we'll see the VIX more like 20 mm -hmm. than uh, 33 like last wow. week. So let's assume that the Russia-Ukraine situation is diffused, Surat. Does that mean that the markets are okay at this point with a potential 50 basis point hike from the Fed? I mean, have we, have we gone all kumbaya with, with a very hawkish Fed here? Is that what happened in just the past few days? I don't believe so. I think, uh, you know, I think it, it's, it's good that we've got a little bit more clarity on Ukraine. We don't really know, but we think we know. So that is not completely done. And I could say the same thing for the Fed. You know, we don't know if it's going to be 50 or 25, and we don't know the trajectory. So I think the uncertainty until we get through this, we're still almost done with earnings season. And then you add to it, you know, the positive of we're almost open with Omicron, but the rest of the world isn't. China's still shut down. Europe is opening up. So you still have some of this uncertainty hanging in there. And I think the markets, like on a day like today, uh, you know, give you some sense of uh, optimism. But I think, you know, we're looking at companies, and it really cash flow positive companies, companies that are going to do better on the reopening, then I think you go all in. You've you got to pick your spots, and today's a good day, but we can very easily come back to the last couple of weeks where the market could test uh, the lows that we had, you know, at the end of January. Jim, are there spots that you've picked, so to speak, in terms of getting in there thinking, you know, it's a pullback, we'll see a bounce, um, it might be volatile ahead, but the opportunity in terms of valuation is just too good? Well, I'll tell you, actually, the most recent move I've made, Melissa, is to sell. Um, and that was last week um, that I sold Marathon Petroleum, which was my way of saying I think the energy rally is phenomenal, but it's just gone too far. 
Um, I have no idea what's going to happen with Russia or Ukraine. I'm not going to throw my hat in that ring of having an opinion on it. Um, but I will say that I'm still invested in energy. I'm, I'm at the market weight. In terms of where do I look now, I think there are starting to become some opportunities in large cap tech growth at a reasonable price, which equals FANG. Um, and also financials, where many of us have seen uh, good growth in the year ahead, but there has been a little bit of a pullback here as the yield curve flattens. On that point, let me just say this. The yield curve has flattened, and that's a question of whether we're late in this economic cycle or early to mid. And with earnings estimates still being revised higher, I say we're early to mid, which means that the yield curve is likely to steepen from here and financials are a good bet. Given uh, the, the, the testiness between you and Weiss earlier, I feel like Weiss might have a comment about is, the notion. This is how we do. I this know. Is me. This is our interfamily squabble. I'm sorry that we but, brought you into uh, it. But I'm but like a kid at the Steve. dinner table with the hands over the ears, not wanting to la, 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 la. Steve Weiss, is Jim Labenthal wrong to think that Fang is a buying opportunity here? No, I, I think Fang is, with the exception of Facebook. Huh. Uh, so Ang, I guess. Uh, look, uh, my view is that they're defensive, that they're growth, and that they'll continue to grow regardless of the cycle, and they're not expensive. So in my view, when money really starts coming back into the market, I know we've seen a little come in, we've also seen some go out, that it's going to come into those stocks, the safety stocks. Plus, keep in mind, they're still the biggest part of the indices. So... Just by default, they're going to come in. So I like them. Uh, you know, we saw that there was some selling of, of Amazon, some of the 13Fs. Who cares? There was also some buying of it. So, look, those stocks are just steady. They'll keep going. So I'm happy to hold them. I haven't paired those back at all, although, as everybody knows, I'm out of Facebook. Yep. All right. Let's bring in our headline guest for the hour, Mike Wilson, Chief Investment Officer and Chief U.S. Equity Strategist at Morgan Stanley. Mike, great to have you with us. Um, Thanks. You, you basically say people are all hung up on, on inflation, what the Fed is going to do, but it's time to focus on, on growth or the lack thereof. It, it seems to me that that sort of intersects, that we're taking a look at a Fed that's, that's inclined to raise rates. Maybe it's, its hand is being forced, but it's got to do that in the face of decelerating growth. That's exactly right. So, I mean, look, I think that, you know, uh, I guess six months ago, we were very focused on the Fed. I, you know, I think the bond market, some of the bond investors were focused on, you know, the Fed, the Fed was behind the curve. It was kind of obvious they were going to shift coming out of that August uh, Jackson Hole meeting. So we call that the fire part of our narrative. And, and I think equity investors just didn't think it would matter. Uh, but of course, it did matter. And it mattered gravely for the very expensive parts of the market. And that now has adjusted. And that's good. You know, that's part of our call for this year is that the derating process was going to be most severe for that you know, most expensive part. I still think the derating process is incomplete. The question now, though, is can earnings growth, revisions, as Jim puts it, can that offset another 10 percent plus derating at the S&P level? And our view is that you know, we don't think that's going to be the case. We think now we shift our focus towards the slowdown that was already in place. And the Fed now is tightening more than even we expected going into that. And that should lead to further deceleration. So there won't be enough revisions to offset that derating. So that's where we are. We're just kind of stuck. It's not the end of the world, but we got to get through that. And I think the risk on those earnings revisions is the greatest in the first half of this year, first quarter, second quarter, because that's when the pent-up demand is fading the most. The comparisons are most difficult. And we're starting to see some supply pickup now in areas which could actually lead to some deflationary whiffs or whiffs of deflation in certain areas that where there, there's going to be pricing power, right, where there was not enough discounting over the last year. 
And that all has to play out. So it's going to be messy for the next, I would say, four to six months. How do you invest in that sort of environment? And I'm thinking about um, the idea, the notion that that there's not going to be much growth. And the playbook of investors in the past has been to go to technology when there isn't cyclical growth in the economy. But that is the precise sector that is getting derated, if you will, in this volatility. It's exactly the right question, Melissa. I mean, normally I would say go right back to the fangs, go right back to the, the secular growth. The problem is a lot of the secular growth stocks, okay, never experienced the recession because there was a pull forward in demand. So that, that's the difference this time. That's why we're seeing some of these fallen angels in the you know, forward favor group. And I think that's, what, that's the way you got to look at it. We're looking at, you know, we call this the year of the stock picker, because even within groups, okay, there are, there are, there are going to be stocks that don't make it because they can't execute, and there will be ones that do execute and make it. And that's the, so it's really about stock picking, and that's what it's going to come down to. So this idea that it's tech versus banks or energy, I think that's out the door. I don't even like the value versus growth so much. It's what stocks do I want to own within each sector? And it's going to come down to who can execute in a very difficult operating environment, deliver the, deliver the revenue growth either through you know, unit growth or pricing power, and hold on to that margin. So that's the game. It's, it's just getting hard. It's been harder. We're in a bear market for stocks. We've been in one for six months. Anybody can see it. The index has held up. Our view is that the index will eventually catch down. That could be wrong. That's our view. We'll see how it plays out. Right now, we're just trying to pick stocks within groups. Weiss, you got a question? Yeah, actually, my question was just that. You take a lot of, a lot of uh, let's say, uh, guff for your market view, which has been pretty consistent and actually pretty right when you get past the indexes. So just I'm sure you have these numbers. If not, just give us an estimate. What is the average S&P stock down over the last year with the market being absolute being essentially flat? Yeah, I mean, obviously, stocks have corrected at different times, Steve, as you know, they don't all correct at the same time. But right. we, we have, you know, like, let me give you a really interesting statistic. We've quoted this many times. 50% of the NASDAQ, okay, was down 50% or more at some point in the last six months. I mean, that's, that's an incredible statistic, okay? I mean, that's like a Cat 5 hurricane out there. So that's what, that's what investors are dealing with. They're trying to navigate this storm. Okay, that's what we do for a living. We had a year and a half of kind of you know, a gravy train over earning. Multiples are going up at the same time. And now we just have some headwinds. And, and we'll get through this. Like, we're not calling for recession. We don't think it's the end of the world. But it's going to be more painful, I think, for the index now than it is going to be for the average stock. And that's what some of those FANG stocks breaking down may be telling us, okay? One thing that, you know, we look at a lot is technicals when you get to this point. And, like, I'm not a technician, and, but I do look at things. I think very simplistically you can say that the NASDAQ and the Russell 2000 are clearly broken on a simple 200-day moving average. The S&P is kind of holding on. We think ultimately it will cave. We'll go down and retest the lows in January. At that point, things look a lot more interesting. You know, closer to 4,000 on the S&P is a point where we'd probably get more bullish on the index. Anastasia, you got a question? Yeah, I got a quick one for you, Mike. Uh, I mean, your view is somewhat against consensus because a lot of strategists are calling for a cyclical reacceleration and cyclicals to do well as yields go up. So would you at this point recommend that investors pare back some of their cyclical exposure and their value exposure and go to some of those pockets of tech that nobody wants to touch because the Fed is hiking rates? Exactly right. Th- thanks for that question. I mean, that, that's basically our view now is that you know, we've been very uh, sort of bearish on the, the very high multiple stuff, and now we've shifted that view in the last month or so to say, hey, 
be careful with this really cyclical stuff that needs economic growth. If you think growth is going to slow as we do, some of these areas actually probably have gotten ahead of themselves, right? With falling PMIs, the consumer confidence already in recessionary levels, you know, some of these lower quality cyclical parts of the market actually look more vulnerable now than, than say, these, you know, high multiple growth stocks. The, the sweet spot for us is really defensively oriented quality, okay? And that actually is boring. You know, it's, it's not exciting. It's things that have dividends. They pay dividends. They're growing those dividends potentially. They're bond proxies, so to speak, because, you know, the bond market's been in a bit, a bit of turmoil. I would say the one thing that could change our view would be, let's say the back end stops going up. We're already in a flattener environment. If that were to happen, okay, then you may see a full-on defensive bid for things like utilities and some of the stuff that the market hasn't been willing to go to because right now the market still thinks that growth is good enough. And that's going to be the $64,000 question. We'll see how it plays out. Well, you put up your base case, Mike, of 4,400, which is about 50 S&P points below where we are right now. And I'm wondering um, if part of that base case scenario is, is inflation comes down, but it remains persistently high, um, that the Fed can't get a handle on it, that it's a little bit behind the curve. And so the impact of a Fed rate hike is going to take much longer. Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's, once again, I think it's going to be really messy. I mean, first of all, I think the chance of inflation getting, you know, significantly below 4% is going to be a challenge, okay, even with the Fed doing all of the hiking that now is priced into the market, which I'm skeptical, skeptical that they can actually get all that done, but they're going to try, okay? But, you know, so inflation is going to remain higher than normal, which is going to put pressure on multiples. But once again, it's going to come down to who's right about growth. You know, I think, you know, Jim is saying he thinks growth's going to accelerate. It's going to be, it's going to be great. And if he's right, Stocks are going to be fine when 4,400 is going to be too conservative. If we're right, then we're probably going to overshoot to the downside first, and we're going to be clawing our way back towards 4,400 as you know, growth resumes in the second half of the year. Mike, always great to speak with you. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Mike Wilson of Morgan Stanley. Surat, defensively boring quality names, bond proxies. Sounds like your cup of tea. It does. It does. And, you know, uh, look, boring can be good. And, and, you know, you can be you can have stocks in pharma. You could have stocks, uh, you know, in consumer staples that are going to grow. And I think Mike's right. Multiples have compressed. And if you get earnings growth, these stocks will actually grow into their multiples or just, you know, take a Bristol Myers. You get a three percent dividend yield and it grows six percent a year. You're going to get a 10 percent return at an eight multiple. So there, there are pockets of opportunity. I'm not saying you have to completely be there. But you have to be diversified so that you can have these defensives, but you can also have some other areas that will grow if rates go up, as Jim talked about, and you can get growth at a reasonable price, too. So all these together kind of really do do become a stock picking market as opposed to, hey, let's just buy the ETF or the index because everything's just going to go up in a straight line. Yeah. Dr. Jay, your thoughts? Well, uh, yeah, I don't think everything's going up in a straight line, um, with the possible exception of energy. Um, so I, I think Surat is spot on there. I think overall, Mel, we're going to be in a situation where vol bounces around. Mike Wilson talked about it being messy. That's what you'd expect if we see that. Uh, but seeing a little calm return to the markets, um, I'm sure right now the markets would much rather deal with inflation, Mel, um, with all of the you know problems that come with that, than with a war between Russia and Ukraine and or uh, any of the uh, NATO alliance jumping into that fray. So this is uh, the world we've got right now. You got to trade what you got, not what you want. And so I'd say uh, I'd much rather be focused on inflation and worrying about that than worrying about Russia. Uh, so I think vol goes down in that case, and that means stocks can. 
uh, you know, deal with that inflationary itch, mm -hmm. which will be, of course, the Fed making a 50, uh, 50 basis point move as a worry versus, like I say, a war. I'll take the inflation worry over that any day. All right. Coming up, Tesla Meta and going big on retail. A close up look at how hedge funds are positioning going into the volatile start of 2022. We're following the money and trading it next. Hat time's back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. I'm Frank Holland. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. The Canadian government is reportedly easing some COVID testing requirements just as Prime Minister Trudeau invoked emergency powers to deal with protesters. Reuters reports Canada will drop testing requirements for fully vaccinated citizens who make short trips abroad. Canada will also reportedly end its recommendation against non-essential international travel. At the Coutts border crossing in Alberta, police say traffic's now moving and the trucker blockade is clearing out as the protesters leave voluntarily. A settlement has been reached in the lawsuit that accused Britain's Prince Andrew of sexually abusing Virginia Jufri when she was 17 years old. Court documents show Andrew will make a substantial donation to Jufri's charity that supports victims' rights. Buckingham Palace has declined to comment on the news. And Remington Arms has agreed to pay $73 million to settle claims connected to the Sandy Hook school mass shooting that killed 26 people. Families and survivors sued Remington over how it marketed the rifle used in that shooting. Remington has denied the allegations. That's the very latest. Melissa, back over to you. Frank, thank you. Frank Holland. Hedge funds making a lot of big moves in this market. Leslie Pickers following the money. Leslie. Hey, Mel. Yeah, it was an interesting quarter. While not a hedge fund, perhaps one of the more auspicious trades of the quarter was Berkshire Hathaway's new stake in Activision Blizzard. Warren Buffett's firm revealing a nearly $1 billion position as of December 31st. That stock is up more than 20% in the six weeks since then thanks to its deal to be acquired by Microsoft, announced in mid-January. Rivian is another name that got a boost after several hedge funds revealed their stakes for the quarter. Co2, Soros, and D1 each held several billion dollars worth of Rivian at the end of the fourth quarter. It's likely, though, that many of those shares are illiquid since they all bought stakes pre-IPO. So they probably had at least some exposure to Rivian's 40% decline over the last six weeks. Also in electric vehicles, Tesla. Greenlight revealing new long puts against 100,000 shares of Tesla with a notional value of more than $100 million. Tesla has declined 13% this year. Renaissance Technologies trimmed some of its stake in Tesla during the quarter and also bought more shares of AMC. 
Hedge funds paired back on big tech as well. Altimeter, Melvin, and Baupost sold some of their respective stakes in Facebook parent company Meta Platforms. Before that, stock tumbled about 35% over the last six weeks. And in Amazon, a slew of funds, including Melvin, Corvex, and Tiger Global, paired back their holdings. All 13F positions are marked on December 31st. They may have changed in the six weeks since then. Melissa. Yeah, Leslie, stay right there. Uh, Dr. J, I'm curious what your your thoughts are. It seems like a, a lot of funds wanted to get out of tech before the big tumble. Who knows if they're in now again, but that's what they did. Yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people, I think, Mel, um, do get too focused on taxes uh, and the impact of taxes. And obviously those fund managers were not focused on that because they were willing to take those big fat profits in 2021 rather than trying to delay that a couple weeks into 2022. And that decision could have cost them 20 percent, 25 percent versus, you know, paying taxes on money you've already made. I think the fund managers showed you that that's what you should be focused on, um, trading and taking profits or cutting losses, but not focused so much on trying to make sure that you maximize or minimize, rather, Mel, the tax implication to either you or your clients. It's more important uh, to be disciplined with taking those profits when you can, not when you have to. Greenlight betting against Tesla. That seemed to be an interesting one, Sarad. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. It, it, you know, there have been a lot of bears in Tesla over the years. Um, they've, a lot of them have gotten washed out at various times they've been right. Most recently, a lot of them have been wrong. Um, is this a risky trade in your view? Uh, it definitely is a risky trade. I mean, he's right so far. The question is, has he you know, covered his short or not? I think Tesla is a very tough stock to, to, to short. I mean, the best way to do it is just not own it. But I think this has a lot of momentum behind it. It has a lot of Tesla lovers behind it. And they've, to their credit, they have executed. They have actually produced the cars. Their revenue is growing. They're, they're, they're actually a real company. So he, he maybe he knows something we don't, but I think it's a very dangerous short uh, for a company that has executed over the last few quarters. And there's so much... Um swing in in some of these pure ev plays anastasia as opposed to a gm and a ford which tried to get re-rated in in 2020 based on their ev ambitions and then have just sort of been you know hanging out there at those levels for the past year or so yeah mel the problem with the whole ev space and playing that through individual companies like gm or ford is that it's such a crowded field and everybody's trying to build their electric car so the trend is certainly your friend, and you got electric vehicle sales that are now approaching 10% of total sales. And in Europe and China, it's more like 20%. So I do like the trend, but I'm not convinced that actually approaching that through the automakers themselves, maybe ex-Tesla is the best way to go. I think about the enabling technology and what do you need to put into an electric car regardless of what kind of automaker you are. And that means lithium to go into the battery technology and it means the battery itself. So I think those enabling technologies is the way that I would approach this. So the picks and shovels, so to speak. Um, retail, also a big um, sector. Leslie, in these filings, David Tepper specifically making some moves. 
Yeah, that's right. David Tepper's Appaloosa revealing small-ish stakes, but in a whole host of mall-oriented names. The firm disclosing new positions in Dick's, Foot Locker, and Nordstrom. The biggest among those was Nordstrom actually worth about $30 million at the end of the fourth quarter. Appaloosa also boosting its holdings in Kohl's by 10% to hold $81 million worth as of December 31st. It also upped its stake in Macy's by 44%, which is now one of the firm's biggest holdings worth more than $264 million at quarter end. Now, it's interesting here because both Kohl's and Macy's have been subject to recent activist events, which make them stand out among perhaps some of the other retailers for the potential for spinoffs and sales. Uh, Kohl's is one of the few retailers actually significantly in the green this year as a result of that. Jana, however, pared back its stake in Macy's by 84% to hold just $20 million uh, worth of shares at quarter end. So a lot of interesting moves in the retail space in particular during the quarter, Melissa. Interesting that David Tepper was able to zero in on the two stocks that were targets of activists, Leslie. Um, Thank you very much, (laughs) Leslie Picker. Steve Weiss, you're friendly with Mr. Tepper. What do you think he saw in those two particular stocks? Well, first of all, I'm glad he he likes Dick's uh, because it's a position of mine. Uh, look, I'll tell you exactly what he saw. He sees omni-channel. He sees where the biggest upside is in the omni-channel. That's why he owns them. He does own them as brick-and-mortar plays. Uh, he's too smart for that. And, um, you know, they are doing well in the omni-channel. Kohl's is making strides there. They've been dormant here for so long. And Macy's, of course, that's been driving their growth. And it also is important for Dick's. So, so that's why he owns them. It's a good play. I wish I bought Macy's when he told me to. As a matter of fact, I wish I bought every stock when he told me to. Otherwise, you know, because maybe I'd be a part owner of the Panthers instead of just sitting in the stands uh, buying my popcorn. <laughs> Jim Labenthal, do you like uh, any of these retailers? Well, I, I don't right now, but I do have them on my radar uh, screen. I actually think Dix is, uh, is, is intriguing. My issue right now, Mel, and the reason why I'm on the sidelines is I do feel that the consumer in the short term looks like they're pulling back. That's what the consumer confidence numbers would indicate. We get retail sales tomorrow. Let's see what happens. Um, but I do think that if this, get, this sector and Dix gets a little cheaper, it becomes very compelling. Uh, Dr. J, you own Gap Calls, getting a downgrade today, a pretty big one to underperform from Bank of America. Yeah, but look what, the, what it's done to the stock, Mel. Absolutely nothing. Mm. I mean, uh, you know, you, if, if Bank of America was the axe in this stock, meaning, of course, that the analyst was somebody everybody pays attention to, then maybe we'd see a little action out of this. But I think overall, Mel, what they've been doing with, of course, Old Navy in particular, um, Gap to a lesser extent and Banana Republic, I think uh, it's still some uh, call that I'm worth holding. Uh, I'm holding on to that. And uh, like I say, if it were somebody more focused on retail than the Bank America analyst, then I think maybe it would have a little sway. Also, of course, the market's up today, so yeah. um, you got to give that a little uh, weight to the situation as well. All right, straight ahead. Trades and some of the biggest analyst calls of the day. Halftime is back right after this. We could try to explain what it feels like to get your work done on a John Deere. The way a Z-Track mower finishes in half the time you thought it would. Or how much easier it is to move mountains of soil with a 1-Series tractor. We could even go into detail about how it feels to tow up to 4,000 pounds behind a Gator XUV. But if you really want to know what it's like to run with us, 
You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. United Airlines downgraded to an underperform over at Wolf. Uh, the stock is sharply higher along with all the airlines today. Sarat, you own this one. Yeah, I own this one and I own Delta. Um, and I think this one's popping just because of the reopening play. Um, they have quite a big exposure internationally and we've seen Transatlantic opening up. Uh, but I, I still prefer Delta. I'm trimming my United uh, and I probably expect to be out of it pretty soon. But Delta's the one I'm going to keep for a longer term. Yeah, Doc, you sold your jet CTF calls. Why? Well, because the, luckily, Mel, we got into this one under 20. Um, unusual call activity out in June. Uh, we reported it here on the halftime report, I think, the 28th of January. And since then, it's made a you know, pretty historic run uh, for this ETF because normally it just kind of meanders. And instead, from you know, 1970 or thereabouts to over 23, maybe 23.50 today, Mel, I decided time to take some profits here. I hope that the airlines do extremely well because that's good for all of us if indeed, you know, the reopen is real. Um, but I just thought it was discipline that needed to be exercised, and that's why I sold. Yeah, Anastasia hopes so too. Anastasia, you like the airlines. Is it airline-specific or is it reopening in general? I like the airlines specifically as the last of the reopening trades. I mean, we've all been in the reopening trades for the bulk of the last year and a half. But if you look at some parts of the reopening trade, like hotels, for example, they've gotten pretty expensive. If you look at multiples, they're quite stretched. But if you look at some of the airline stocks, which we're discussing right now, they're probably half, if not more, less than what the hotels are trading at. So I still like those a lot. And if you think about what the optionality is on airlines, it's the recovery in cross-border travel, which we know is still down 50% or so from 2019 levels. And it's also the recovery in business travel. And I think we can probably all allude to uh, on, on the show that we're all getting back up in the air for business now, not just leisure. Yeah. Coming up, John's tracking some unusual activity in the options market. His latest trades next on the Halftime Report. Time for unusual activity. John, what are you watching? Well, Melissa, we're taking a look at Palantir, first of all. Why? Because with the stock at about 1370 today, they were buying this Friday expiration, regular uh, February expiration, 1550 calls. So they're looking for some pretty decent upside. They bought 18,000 of those, Mel, and they paid just 25 cents. So just a really cheap shot on the stock popping between now and, of course, the end of the week. They do have earnings due out 
on the 17th before the market opens, Mel. So just two days out. Second one is a company that's involved with autonomous vehicles and so forth, Laser, um, L-A-Z-R. In this case, they're buying the 25th of February expiration calls at the 17 strike. The stock was right around 1570 when they were buying these. They bought 8,000 of them. That's 800,000 share equivalent. I love these big purchases, and I followed along in both of these stocks. I'll probably be in the uh, uh, Palantir about two days and Laser probably another week, Mel. All right. We got more trades ahead. We'll get you set up for earnings after the bell from Wynn Resorts, Roblox, and more. Halftime's back right after this. Let's trade some stocks with earnings after the bell today. At least start off with uh, Jim uh, Wynn Resorts. Jim, you're in it. Yeah, Wynn Resorts. So obviously this is a reopening play. Mel, you heard me earlier that I think we're still early in the economic cycle. But, you know, one thing really stands out, the room rates. If you look at what Wynn has been charging for rooms in Las Vegas, they're sort of through the roof, like triple digits versus a year ago. Um, and, you know, a lot of people want to put it down because of Macau. But my thesis here is that Macau doesn't matter. The, the stock is undervalued just based on the Las Vegas operations. We'll see tonight. Yeah, uh, Roblox, the metaverse play. Surat, you're in this one. I am this one, and this is going to be interesting. We're going to look at how many active users they have. Uh, they've just signed an agreement with the NFL, and, you know, Squid Games was very popular. But it's all about trajectory of users and time spent. Stock's down a third. I mean, this is definitely one of my speculative plays in the metaverse. They coined the term metaverse, so let's see how it goes. But, but I, I like it for the long term, but it's going to be volatile earnings no matter what. Dr. J, you're bullish on this one, too. What kind of time frame are you trading in? Very short term, Mel. Um, and last time in November, when they reported earnings, stock was under 80 bucks. It went to 134 in 11 days. Um, so that's really fast movement. So Surat's exactly right. You can expect some volatility out of this one. Um, it's right back there, Mel. It's at 70 bucks, give or take. And I'm seeing right now an awful lot of the 70 calls being bought um, all the way up to the 100 strike. Um, so people are willing to bet that perhaps those numbers that Surat just cited are going to be better than expected, especially after this wicked sell-off that it's experienced. Well, you won't want to miss the Roblox CEO. Be tomorrow on Squawk on the Street, 9.45 a.m. Eastern Time in a CNBC exclusive. Finally, we've got to get to Viacom CBS. Jim, you are in this one. What do you see for it? Yeah, I'll make this very simple. This is about the streaming subscriber counts at Paramount+. Plus. We've already seen Disney surprise to the upside in terms of their sub counts, and we saw Netflix disappoint. So we're in an environment where there are haves and haves nots. It's competitive. I think Viacom is going to surprise to the upside on subscriber counts on the basis of Yellowstone and 1883, as well as some other content hits. All right. Up next, final trades on the halftime. It is time for the final trades on the Halftime Report. Dr. J, kick it off. All right, Mel, I'm going to go with AMD. Why? Because they're just buying everything on the screen right now. They're buying from the 116 strike, 117, 120. The 120 strike, Mel, 68,000 calls have changed hands so far today. Uh, Lisa Su, the CEO and president of the company, says the sh uh, chip shortages will not be resolved this year. They'll work through it, but that means pricing power to me, Mel. So I'm holding on to these calls through the end of the week. All right. Anastasia. 
I'll take the other side of the tech trade, which is software. I think investors should skate to where the puck is going. And I agree with Mike Wilson that it's about getting out of the cyclical sectors and getting back to secular growth. And software margins are very profitable. Free cash flow is there. And a lot of stocks in this particular ETF are reasonably priced. So I'd be buying software here. Steve Weiss. Yes, after spending an hour with fanboy Jim's favorite CEO, I'm even more enamored of Cleveland Cliffs. So I think that's a great stock going forward. And speaking of shortage, they supply the auto companies and they've got tremendous pricing power. Surat. I like Disney for the reopening play. The flywheel's working. Disney Plus is accelerating. Stock's been out of favor. Uh, It's flat for the year and I see some more upside on this one. Jim, a quickie. Boeing is up today because the news is good. All right. (laughs) That does it for us here on the Halftime Report. Great to be with you guys. The exchange with Kelly Evans begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older like a family vacation or starting your dream business welcome to connie's coffee how may i help you aarp's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds that's why the younger you are the more you need aarp start planning today at aarp.org money tools 